Mike, why don't you lead us through that? So this is very uh, last minute. So I was having this conversation just now with Jordan when Brad comes up. says, you're going to Romania? We're going to commission you. So he has nothing prepared for this. So be prepared for improv on Jordan's part. But I just ask the simple question, what are you doing in Romania? Um, we're going to an orphanage and helping out children with disabilities and running a volleyball camp. And yeah. yeah. Repairing an orphanage and I think your mom's trying to give you signals. And leadership? <laughs> leadership comp. Oh, see, you didn't tell me that either. Leadership conference, helping repair the orphanage. And apparently Jordan's the only volleyball player, so he's going to head up the training the volleyball and as well as training the people who are going to train the volleyball uh, kids there. So we're going to pray for him. Uh, I invite you to extend out your hands as we commission Jordan. He leaves on Tuesday. Tuesday. So we'll, we'll pray for him. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you've presented for Jordan to go over to Romania. Uh, we thank you for his heart, desire to, to serve over there as well, these kids with disabilities, uh, on top of living at an orphanage as well. Um, we pray that you would help soften his heart, soften the heart of his team as well as they go over to serve, uh, that this isn't just a time where they're helping those on the margins, but also that you would be growing their faith as well as they serve. We pray for safety over them as they fly, uh, with all those layovers that no one would get lost, uh, we pray for health as well, your protection over them. As so often when we go out to do some service things, that's when the enemy attacks. So I pray over him and over his team, Lord, that you would protect them from any attacks, any illnesses, uh, any family or relationship things, Lord. We pray your hand of protection over them as you prepare them to go over. And we pray for the kids in Romania as well, that you would be preparing their hearts for what you have in store for them through um, Jordan and his classmates and, and the supervisors that are going over with them. Uh, and we pray that you would prepare their hearts to do the work that you're calling them to, whether it's repairing uh, the orphanage, uh, chatting, having conversations with the kids or the staff to encourage them, uh, or in the volleyball as well. We just pray that your hand of blessing would be over it and that today would be perfect examples of Christ and your love to these kids. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right on. Thanks, Jordan. We'll be praying for you as God brings you to our minds. Well, uh, welcome here, everyone. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team at Jericho Ridge. And in 2017, we're emphasizing two things. One is uh, building a foundation of prayer, and the other one is conversations of care uh, with each other. And so we've spent the last two months on Sunday mornings in our teaching times together looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And we came to the phrase, your kingdom come. And that weekend we were doing a prayer training seminar uh, with John Smed and the team from Prayer Current. And John said as he started that message, oh great, it's nice of Brad to ask me to preach the hardest sermon in the whole of the New Testament defining the kingdom of God. So I'm getting a bad rap as offloading all of the heavy lifting to guest speakers and other members of our staff team around here. But I did begin to think more about John's phrase and that notion of the kingdom of God as a hard thing to define and understand. And I realized that how true that really is. Because the story of the Bible is in some ways the story of God's kingdom 
coming and advancing and unfolding. We see God at work in the Old Testament, shaping and drawing people to himself. And we come to Jesus and we see that one of the primary things that Jesus talks about more than anything else in his teaching ministry is the kingdom of God. The word kingdom is found 55 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 20 times in Mark, 46 times in Luke, and five times in the Gospel of John. So the kingdom of God is not a minor topic when it comes to Jesus and his teaching and his understanding of it. And yet, if you were asked by somebody to define the kingdom of God, could you do it? What is the kingdom of God? And the challenge actually gets a little bit further amplified because kingdom language gets used a lot in the contemporary church. So, for example, someone might say very, very accurately, we have a team from our church down in Guatemala this week doing kingdom work. Or maybe someone would say, you know, thank you for uh, the way in which you or your ministry is advancing the kingdom here in our city. Or reflecting on an evangelistic crusade, somebody might say, many people gave their hearts to Jesus, they entered the kingdom. But despite how much people talk about the kingdom and use the word and the label to describe even in those three uh, illustrations, three very different things, but the same word, defining the kingdom is harder than you might expect. But I think we can help ourselves a little bit if we just take it out of the realm of trying to think about the Bible and the kingdom of heaven and all of that stuff for a minute and just think about kingdoms as a word or as a category, like for example, say the kingdom of Denmark. What do we actually know that there needs to be present in order for there to be a kingdom called Denmark? All right, let's just toss some answers out. No wrong answers, like what, it, what are the things that make up a kingdom? Mike, a king, there has to be somebody in charge, yes? Yes, what else? A nation, a nation. some kind of people that they, this Sovereign is ruling over. Yeah, Michael. Uh, yes, that's a great answer. There's traditions that come. Absolutely. What else? Land. Yeah. A crown and a throne. Yes, very regal. What else do we need to be present for there to be a kingdom? An administration, some way or system of governance of making the will of the king actually executed in some way. Anything else? An army, says Joel, if we need a kingdom, we better defend it. Yeah, yeah. What else? Taxes. Taxes. We got to fund this kingdom somehow. <laughs> I love it. So many, so like we, we actually have some ideas of what a kingdom actually is. But I think when we then go and look at the kingdom of God, what we have to figure out is how many of these categories fit and how many of them do we have to reshape or discard or repurpose in some way. And so I want us in this series, as we go through and talk about the various uh, ways in which the kingdom of God actually works 
And the way that we participate in and enter into the kingdom, the way the kingdom is shaped, we're going to look particularly in the book of Matthew and how over and over and over again, the phrase the kingdom of God is used to describe yet another aspect of what it is that God has for us to enter into. And to do this well is actually going to take some time because it is one of the harder things to define in the Bible. And so we're moving into this teaching series now called Your Kingdom Come, which will take us through the season of Lent, will take us through Easter, through Pentecost, and right till the end of June. And as we gather each weekend, we're going to explore together all of the different aspects of the principles that God's kingdom runs on and the ways in which then we participate and engage in that. So we're going to have lots of help from various people at Jericho are going to be teaching and we'll hear stories of people coming into membership and where uh, the kingdom has come into their lives and how they see God's will being done in their lives uh, as it is in heaven. But we still have our fundamental tricky problem and that is defining the kingdom. What do we mean when we use the phrase kingdom of God? And one of my favorite uh, authors and theologians wrote a book about this a few years ago uh, called The Kingdom Conspiracy. And he uses a helpful illustration in there that I want us to look at a little bit today because he highlights for us what I think is a very common problem. And that problem is this. That what tends to happen in the church today is that we take whatever we're excited about in that particular moment or season or tribe and we give it the label kingdom. And therefore, what happens is we kind of co-opt the language of the kingdom to justify our unique theological bent or sanctify our own personal perspectives. And so McKnight uses a helpful metaphor to, to unpack this a little bit for us and what's happening in this discussion in the Christian movement in the Western world. So he says that the kingdom and the argument about the definition of the kingdom could be likened to two groups of people. A difference, he says, between a, a pleated pants crowd that likes to have it nicely all together and well organized and ironed and kind of buttoned up and all, all sorted out. And then the skinny jeans crowd, who's a little more okay with it being messy and authentic and all of those types of things. So the pleated people pants have a definition of the kingdom of God. And often, they're very keen to answer the question of where is the kingdom of God? Jesus said that it was here, and it was close. And he noted also when he talked to people that there was a future dimension and nature to it. So the pleated pants people, they're very proper theologians in their discussion. They're rigorously trained, and so they use big phrases to describe this. And they say things like, the kingdom of God is about a realized eschatological reality. Ooh, and we all say, yes, that sounds very impressive. What in the world does that mean? And they further then talk about how it's been inaugurated, but it's not fully consummated. Great, super interesting, um, and also very true. But how does that help us 
understand what it is that God wants for us in the kingdom. See, the pleated pants crowd likes to answer the question of where, and they also uh, like to answer the question as to how the kingdom should be organized or structured. And so this actually gets the pleated pants crowd into some weird places because the pleated pants crowd can get super excited about linking the kingdom with things like politics. And then they decide, you know what? Those agendas should be advanced together and we should wed them together. And so we get weird marriages throughout history between religious and political conservatism with a view to see the kingdom of God more fully realized. So we'll talk about uh, the kingdom and politics as its own topic in a few weeks. But as a general observation, when you hear the pleated pants crowd talk about the kingdom of God, they usually are talking about spiritual stuff. So they're usually talking about things like evangelism would be a big word for them. They're talking about usually redemptive moments where the kingdom is breaking in to our reality. So that would be things like personal salvation, could be elements of healing in some way, could be an element that they feel important to restore some aspect of culture that has been tainted by the fall or by evil. And so they're going to get engaged in that process in bringing redemption or redemptive moments or the kingdom Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those are the things that the pleated pants people get excited about. Not bad, evil, or wrong things at all. But on the opposite side of this question of defining the kingdom, we have the skinny jeans people. And the skinny jeans people, you know, are ministry hipsters. And they, this is a gross overgeneralization, but stick with me on this one for a minute. The skinny jeans crowd emphasizes the fact that the kingdom is breaking into our reality wherever justice is done. When people who are poor get fed, the kingdom is coming. When kids get better educated in schools and the school goes up in the Fraser Institute rating, the kingdom is coming. When creation is getting cared for and the common good is being advanced, the kingdom is coming. And so when skinny jeans people use the language of kingdom, usually they're using it to describe justice or good deeds done by good people, Christian or not, in the public sector for the common good. And that's kingdom work that is happening. So very, very different definitions of the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God should go about breaking into our reality. Very different places that this group, each group thinks about spending its time and its resources. Very, very different visions in some ways of what the people of God or the church should be about. And so we're left to wrestle with the question, well, who's right? Or what aspects of each definition are right, and which ones could you merge together? Who should define the shape of the kingdom of God? And the challenge is if you don't talk openly about this stuff and bring your presuppositions about the kingdom of God onto the table for analysis and for discussion, what we end up with in a church like Jericho or any church is 
you have some people who are lean more towards the skinny jeans perspective on the kingdom, others who lean more towards the pleated pants people on the kingdom, and everyone has ruffled feathers because nobody sees the kingdom the way that it should be seen, which is the way that I see it. <laughs> and so we get into fights about ridiculous things. And so this is not a new challenge or new dilemma that the church is in. The church has been arguing about this for at least three centuries, if not more. Uh, how should we as a church go about doing the work that God has called us to do? Should we be saving souls or running soup kitchens? When we're running soup kitchens, how much soul saving should bleed into the soup kitchen work? When we go into the high school or the hospital, are we going in with an ultimate vision of doing evangelism or doing justice? And so one of the things that we need to acknowledge is that in any discussion where the church has been wrestling about something for three centuries, we're not going to solve it in one Sunday. And also, it should signal for us a profound need for humility to engage in the conversation with people that have differing perspectives than we do. But it also helps us if we can sharpen and focus our definition of the kingdom because then we can understand where we want to spend time and how God has equipped and strengthened us and given us a passion for. So we do need to think about how we're thinking. As our own Al Thiessen is very fond of saying, you have to think clearly in order to act correctly. And so if you can think correctly about something, then that's the pathway of beginning to act correctly. So it is really worth doing a little bit of work to define and clarify our terms. Are we doing kingdom work, for example, when I'm mowing my neighbor's lawn? Are we reflecting the priorities of the kingdom when I say, you know, I don't think I really need to go to church regularly. I do lots of kingdom work at my job during the week. I need a break from kingdom stuff on the weekends. So one of the things that I want you to catch in our time together this morning is that when you want to define a word that shows up in the Bible, let the Bible speak into the definition of that term. This is one of the great things about doing life journaling uh, together as we go straight to the source. And so this morning we're going to look at and begin to look at where does this phrase get used in the Bible. And so I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. One of the most helpful places for defining this is in the conversations that Jesus has because he uses this phrase a lot. And so we're going to focus the bulk of the series on how does Jesus define and give shape to the kingdom of God. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is always using phrases like, the kingdom of God is like, and then he'll tell a story. Or the kingdom of heaven is, and then he'll describe something that's happening about the kingdom. And so we're going to see that the kingdom of God is, in fact, one of the main themes of Jesus' teaching. And so what did Jesus say that would help us better come to an understanding of the kingdom of God? So the, we're going to look today at the first couple of times where this phrase is used in Matthew's gospel. And spoiler alert, we're going to see both skinny jeans and pleated pants dynamics 
at work because Jesus is concerned in his ministry with both evangelism and works of justice. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is at the very start of his public ministry. He's been baptized. He's been tempted. And then he begins right away a public ministry of preaching and teaching. And so in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we read a window on the content of Jesus' sermons. It says this in Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, and he preached this, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we don't get a full picture of the kingdom of heaven from this verse, obviously, but we get several aspects of it that begin to emerge that help to define and shape our thinking. I was reading this last week in our life journaling in, in Acts chapter 28, one of the very last verses in, in the gospel of, in the book of Acts is where it says, and Paul taught about the kingdom of God, and then it just kept going. I was like, but what did he teach them? That would be so helpful for our sermon series if we could steal his syllabus but he didn't share it. So we got to kind of dig a little bit deeper. Something here, this verse gives us some insight on what does the kingdom of God involve. And one of the things we see right away is that it involves a dimension of proclamation or declaration. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching publicly. I sometimes uh, hear people quote St. Francis of Azizi in saying, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And what I think people are driving at when they say this is that their, their life should speak. Your life should be a reflection of whatever theology you're going to articulate. And at, you should act and live in a way that's consistent with the truth of whatever verbal declaration you give of the kingdom of God. So, you know, when someone says, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, that's a helpful piece of the puzzle, but it's only one piece of the puzzle because the kingdom of God involves proclamation and declaration in some way, using words in other words. So if you're not using words to explain your actions, how do people know that our team on the Guatemala is there to demonstrate God's love? If you're not using words to explain your actions and back up your behaviors, you're not preaching a full gospel. People in Willoughby or Clayton or wherever you live or work are not just going to stumble their way into heaven simply by watching you be a nice person day in and day out. The kingdom of God requires proclamation or declaration or explanation in some way. That's one way that we can participate in the kingdom work. Not belligerently, but as God gives you opportunity to do so. Closely related to this, the kingdom of God not only needs to be heralded or spoken about or proclaimed, it also needs to be uh, received. In other words, there is an action that's required on the part of the hearer. Jesus says as he preaches, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. So sometimes I hear people talk about how they've shared a witness or a gospel declaration time and time and time again with a friend or a family member, and that person just doesn't seem to get it. 
And so the discouraged Christian feels like they've done the declaration part and they grow concerned. Maybe they did it wrong. Maybe I didn't use the right words that they didn't get it. Or maybe the kingdom didn't get explained as clearly as somebody else could do it. Or, or maybe, oh, I don't know, I just, maybe I'm just a bad kingdom ambassador. And so they heap guilt on themselves and begin to say, well, I'm just not good at that evangelism thing. I better leave that to professionals or people who are gifted at that, like pastors or evangelists. Friends, what I want you to remember is that while you have a part in declaration, there's also a response and an action that's required on the part of the hearer. And that's not within your full control or ability to control. See, you have the, the opportunity, as God gives it to you, to be a faithful witness and a proclaimer and declarer. But once you do that, the action that's required on the part of the hearer is the work of the Holy Spirit to come to places of repentance and faith. Otherwise, we can subtly or not so subtly make it all about us and our witness and how we're doing at that. And so here's a word of encouragement that I want you to hear today. Consider this, that not everyone who listened to Jesus preach, walked away from those encounters a full member and participant in the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus proclaimed and declared the kingdom, but listeners still have to choose as an act of their will to enter into it and to follow Jesus volitionally, by choice, because the kingdom doesn't force itself into anyone's life without consent. And so the thought that I want to leave you with is, if Jesus couldn't save everybody, what makes you so confident that you should be able to? There's a profound humility that we need to recognize when it comes to our role as declarers and heralds, that the listener also has a part as a receiver and an actor in this. And so the other thing to be attentive to here in this place is to remember that we do not have our ultimate assignment from the Holy Spirit to be the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. We're going to see in this series and in some of the texts that Jesus uh, that Jesus uses quite clear language to help us understand that sometimes people who think that they're in the kingdom should be much less confident of their standing. And some people who think they're on the outs might be not as far away as you and I sometimes think. Some people choose repentance and faith and which makes them a participant in the kingdom of God, but they may not do it in the way or the place or the exterior expression of that that you and I might see. They may not raise their hand, bow their head, close their eyes. And so there's sometimes a hiddenness to the way in which the kingdom comes that can make it challenging for us to police. For example, I remember my parents. Um, they started going back to church when uh, we were young in our house. And my dad, 
in a very practical way, was really wrestling with the notion that anything spiritual could happen outside of the context of sitting in a pew in between the hours of 10.30 and noon on a Sunday morning. To him, kingdom stuff like prayer only counted if it happened in that 90 minutes in that place. And so if you didn't talk to God in that window of time, you missed your chance for the rest of the week. And so it was a shock to my dad that you could actually engage in conversation and listen to God and talk to him if you weren't in that space. And so I remember one Monday evening, him kneeling beside a ratty couch in our living room and him saying, God, I want to choose to give my life to you. I want to be a part of your family, part of your kingdom. And it happened quietly and outside of the radar of most people around us. Without the worship team playing the just right kind of keys and synth pad required or background music, without a pastor doing an altar call, he entered the kingdom. And so I share that just to encourage you to say, don't grow weary or discouraged if you don't see people flocking into the kingdom in the way that you might picture they will. Because sometimes real kingdom action is happening just off of our radar screens. And the Holy Spirit is working when you and I aren't looking. So don't grow weary. Keep on praying. Keep on inviting. Keep on sharing. Keep on trusting the Spirit to do the work that the Spirit wants and desires to do. Two more things to note here in Jesus' initial introduction into the kingdom of God. The one thing to note is that Jesus is clear that the kingdom of God involves ethics. The kingdom is going to touch not just my mind, but also my behavior. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Entrance in and participation in the kingdom is going to require a change in my behavior, not just a change in my thinking. If I'm going to repent of my sins and turn to God, and we're going to see this as we go through a series and trace the theme through scripture, repentance is not just a one-time event. It's an ongoing posture or process. We need to keep on repenting and turning. The fourth thing we see as we look in this verse as Jesus announces and defines the shape of the kingdom is that it has a proximity, a nearness, an imminence to it. It's, it's near and it's close at hand. So it's not just out there. This reminds us that God's not just interested in sort of way out there, eternal, somewhere, someday kind of things. God is not just interested in getting your soul and then getting you and others to heaven. The kingdom of God is going to touch our world and our lives, and it's going to break in to the here and to the now. And so the church in some places and at some times has been guilty of overemphasizing this kind of eternal escapism. So you just need to get your ticket into the kingdom and then pray the prayer and then you're good. But Jesus is reminding us here that the kingdom of heaven is not solely about ethereal, otherworldly type of stuff. It's also about what God is doing in the here and now. And we see this highlighted for us just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 4. Look with me at verse 23, where it says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed 
every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. People began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them. Large, verse 25, large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, from the ten towns, from Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east even of the Jordan River. This begins to give us another taste of the expansiveness of the definition of what the kingdom of God is. Is Because, you see, the kingdom of God, here we see, includes the announcement of good news. The message of the kingdom is a message of good news or a message that contains or is resident with, replete with good news. And that means when we announce it, we also need to be aware of both the tone and the content in which we announce good news. If we bring the kingdom with the sole goal of scaring people into quick decisionism by telling people how horrible hell is and how they don't want to go there, that can be a one-sided, technique-driven way of announcing the kingdom. And that's not the way in which Jesus proclaims it. On the flip side, truncating the good news and making it just light and culturally palatable and relevant with smoke machines and pyrotechnics is not particularly healthy either. Jesus is going to begin teaching more in Matthew chapter 5 about the contents of the good news. And he's clear that the good news is also means, can mean suffering and persecution. But that's still the kingdom. And it's still part of the good news. And so we're beginning to get an understanding here that the kingdom is more expansive than we often give credit for. We see too in this verse that the kingdom of God is concerned with the meeting of physical needs. Jesus brings healing to people who need it. He's not merely concerned about spiritual stuff. He releases people from demonic oppression but also from disease. He doesn't just preach and give intriguing and interesting intellectual messages. Part of the work that he does is bringing healing. Part of the work that I believe that God has called us to as a community here at Jericho is to be a place of healing, to be a place of healing for those damaged by religion, to be a place of healing for those who are willing to admit their brokenness. So don't ever get the idea that in order to be part of this community, you have to have your stuff all together to participate because there's no perfect people allowed at Jericho Ridge. Just people who need healing in some way and who are willing to walk with others also in need of healing. Because here's the thing about what we see in this text when people experience healing and transformation. They have a very natural desire to say to other people, I was healed. They want to tell others about what they experienced and the things that God has done for them in their lives. And this is one of the ways that the kingdom advances. It's very natural as you share respectfully with others what God is doing and has done in your life, what God is teaching and showing you about his heart and his character, where he's giving you opportunities to share that with others. You may be learning about how to process grief 
and how to handle challenging health or relationship situations. And then when someone around you begins to talk about and say, I'm going through this experience, it's a hard, I'm having a hard time with it, then you can gently and with wisdom and grace as the Spirit enables you, share with them how God is shaping you. The final thing to note here about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God loves to bust up barriers that we like to put up in humanity. See, already early in his earthly ministry, Jesus is teaching beyond the acceptable boundaries of a single culture or ethnicity. He's going and drawing people up from Syria, from the east side of the Jordan. He's drawing people from Jerusalem, from Judea, all of these groups that don't hang out together. And Jesus says, the kingdom is actually comprised of this type of stuff. Multiple people groups, languages, nations, bringing reconciliation and peace where there's been hostility and strife. And that's why kingdom people can often be found crossing racial or socioeconomic lines. They're the ones who are caring for people who are poor or who are advocating for different ethnic groups or people on the margins. And so here's the big idea that I want you to walk away with today. Actually, it's a two-part idea, so I'm cheating and sneaking in two ideas in one slide. And this is the kingdom is actually has a two-part call to it. A skinny jeans part and a pleated pants part. So this is from actually our confession of faith, uh, our commentary and pastoral application section of it. So when we think about as a church, as a movement, as a family, how do we understand the kingdom? We understand the gospel in terms of both evangelism and social concern. We must work without reservation to call people to repentance and reformation of life in Jesus. And we must live out the social implications of the good news by caring for those in need and proclaiming God's peace and justice in the wider community. So here at Jericho, we are not going to get dragged into a false dichotomy or get pulled into, oh, I'm in the pleated pants camp, or oh, I'm in the skinny jeans camp. With our team as in Guatemala this week, building homes, they declare with full boldness and humility the full gospel of Jesus. When we choose a local partner like Wagner Hills and we go down and support and work with the woman there, we make sure that that partner is tending not just to the needs that they see, but in a holistic way to care for soul and body and spirit as well as addictions. And this is what we see Jesus doing again and again and again. He proclaims and declares the kingdom and he proclaims and declares good news, but he also heals and brings people into places of reconciliation. So what does this mean for us? Two quick things. The first thing is just be careful. Be aware of your own biases. Watch your language. Watch what you like to slap the word kingdom on. Because the kingdom is about both transformation and liberation. And so we can often get caught in one or the other. So don't just take your own personal theological hobby horse or your activities and slap the label kingdom work on them. Be aware in this discussion that each of us actually has a natural strength, inclination, bent, and ability, gifts that God has given you, 
And so what elements then do you need to work on more to bring a sense of balance to your understanding or to your actions? What sense of openness do you need to receive from another perspective and listen carefully to the way in which God's wired someone else up? And don't begin immediately saying, well, that's not kingdom work because you're not doing X, Y, or Z. Just watch your language. Be careful what you slap the label kingdom on. The second reminder that I want to bring for us as we launch into this series is that it's not your kingdom, my kingdom, or our kingdom. The kingdom has a king already, and his name is King Jesus. And so the language of establishing or building or growing and language that we just get a little bit sloppy with sometimes, we need to remember that When it comes to the kingdom, we don't build, grow, or establish it. That's the king's business. We partner with him, but the kingdom and its growth, its building, its establishment is ultimately a divine act, not human accomplishment, even by a group of really dedicated, really hardworking Christian people. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done in my life in Jericho Ridge as it is in heaven. We long to see God's kingdom established, but what are the areas where sometimes you and I get tempted to believe that we're responsible to be the kingdom bringers and the kingdom setter-uppers and the kingdom advancers? Biblical terminology isn't consistent with that. We enter it, we receive it, we assist in humility as God gives us grace because the kingdom and any discussion in the kingdom should always lead us back to the king. And so Pastor Wally's going to come and lead us as we prepare our hearts for a time of celebrating communion together this morning.